Sometimes we learn by watching somebody do something right. Sometimes we learn by watching somebody do something wrong and going, I'm not going to do it that way. Today is more the latter than the former. Uh, I have several running routes that I like to go on. And one of them, I live down by the bridge. I run up uh, the Cushman Trail, cross the freeway, run down by Safeway all the way down Point Fosdick, run down to the airport, cut across Stone, and then come back again. And uh, I decided one day that I'd really like to improve my time and see how fast I could go on the run. So I was totally focused on speed. Speed. And I was doing really well. I got the uphill portion done. I was on the downhill portion. I was coming down by Safeway. I didn't get hit by a car crossing any of the, the driveways. So it was a very successful run. And as I'm getting down towards the library, I see that this guy in a car has pulled over and is standing outside of his car. And I'm kind of looking at him and he literally has a map out. I mean, who does that anymore, right? He has a physical map out, and I can tell he's totally lost. And as I approach him, he looks up at me and goes, can, I can you help me? And I'm like, no, I can't. And I just kept running. And I hope you are as appalled as I am now as I tell the tale. Um, I just was so focused on getting this time that I didn't have enough time to see what was wrong with the dude. I mean, maybe he was on his way someplace really important. I, I could have been helpful, but I was busy and fixated on my time. And the kicker is, I don't even remember what my time was. I have no idea what my best time on that loop is. But I was completely focused on the wrong thing. I could have helped somebody. It might have even been somebody that God brought across my path. But all I could see was I wanted the best time ever. Me focusing on the thing that wasn't most important is totally the opposite of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, well, let's talk about apostles for a second. What's an apostle? Well, people use the word apostle and disciple kind of interchangeably, only they're not really. The disciples were the 12 when Jesus was physically present with them. Disciple means learner. They were the people who were the closest Jesus, who are learning about Jesus and learning about what would ultimately become our faith. So after Jesus dies and is resurrected and ascends into heaven, apostleship really becomes kind of an office and also a spiritual gift, depending on which list that you read. And so there's more than just the 12. Apostle means to be sent out. Disciples to learn, apostles to be sent out. And so it becomes an office in the church. Some were apostles, some were pastors and teachers and so on. Um, people who were sent out to plant churches um, and who that was, and they also went far beyond the 12. A number of other people are mentioned as apostles. Uh, Paul was not a disciple, but Paul was an apostle. Other people like Barnabas, Barnabas is mentioned as an apostle. And Junia, a woman, is actually mentioned as an apostle. So apostles were people who were focused on some very specific goals of planting churches, teaching people about Jesus, making them disciples, baptizing people. And Paul was very good at this and was very, very focused on it. Paul was really good at being singularly focused on what was most important. And that was about sharing the good news about Jesus. I'm quite sure Paul would have stopped the run to help the person. 
But I'm not the only one who gets distracted. The Thessalonians got distracted too. They focused on not the main thing, but on a tangent. And that's what we're going to look at today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And just a heads up, I usually read from the New International Version, and today I like the New Revised Standard Version better. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, first of all, let's remember the content, the context of the Thessalonian Christians. Paul had only been there for a couple of weeks. He gave them what Paul thought was just the bare minimum of what they needed to know about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Paul was focused on that, but he hadn't been able to disciple them the way that he had wanted to. And so they do really, really well in some areas, but there's an area or two where Paul wants to teach them more. And this is one of those areas because they have kind of gotten off on an area that's a tangent. Um, and so Paul is going to kind of correct what they're thinking, and he's going to do it in a very interesting way. So this, this whole passage is about Jesus coming again. And that is absolutely central to our faith. I mean, the mystery of our faith that we recite sometimes at the Eucharist is that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. That's always been the hope of Christian people, that Jesus is coming back for us. And people, particularly in the era right after Jesus, expected that to happen any time. Paul certainly sounds like he expects Jesus to come anytime. And a problem arises that as you know, we get some distance out, we know that it was 20 years after Jesus died that Paul writes Thessalonians, people start to die. And when people start to die, it begins to raise questions for people. Well, the believers who've died, does that mean that they missed the resurrection? And what happens when we die? And where do we go when we die? And they basically had all of the same questions that we have about death, except that for them there was this huge confusion because they didn't think they were going to die. They thought that Jesus would return first. So they have all of these questions that they are kicking around, and it becomes a problem because of their focus on it. But I want to walk through the text first because there's some very important stuff that's in there. So verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Hope is at the core of who we are as Jesus followers. This last year and a half that we have been wandering through this difficult COVID time, we have known that the primary purpose of the church is to give people hope, to give people hope who know Jesus, to remind them that Jesus is present with us, that no matter what goes on, Jesus is in control. 
and also to give people hope who don't know Jesus, that there is more that meets the eye, that there is a God who loves them, who is holding things together. We have hope. Hope is incredibly important. And the hope comes in the resurrection. I mean, this is a huge deal. Paul talks about this a lot in 1 Corinthians. The promise is that if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then we will be raised from the dead too, which means that everything up to and including death doesn't have the final word over us. There's tremendous hope in that. There will be grief. In fact, I just came from a memorial service, and the grief was very real. But Christian grief has hope that comes alongside of it, and that changes the grief. And every once in a while, because of my occupation, I, I do a funeral or a memorial service for somebody who isn't a believer, and it's just so tragic to stand at death and be able to say nothing, to give no, I mean, I always talk about the goodness of God, but I can see the look in some people's eyes that there is nothing beyond this. Only we have that hope. And Paul wants them to have hope too. He wants to contrast the hope of the gospel with the wild, hopeless mourning that went on at pagan funerals. And so he talks about this, about we people die and we grieve, but we also have hope. And he wants us to understand what death looks like for Christians. Death, for Paul in this period, death was viewed as a sleep from which you awoke at the resurrection. And in fact, that word, that sort of positive, sleeping until raised, um, is the Greek word that we actually get our word cemetery from. It literally means to sleep in anticipation of the resurrection. So Paul uses this word to remind them that this, this death is only temporary. He doesn't say where they are. He doesn't say what state they're in. He simply acknowledges that they are in God's care. And when Jesus appears again, so will they. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. So basically what he's saying is that the people who have died are not going to get left behind. In fact, they will be raised first, and then those of us that are still living, as Paul apparently anticipates he will be, we will be caught up together. So basically don't worry. The people that you love who have died, or if you die before Jesus returned, you don't get left behind. You get raised too. Verse 16, For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will raise first. I think it's important to understand what resurrection is. Um, Christians and Jews before us have always believed in a bodily resurrection. Um, we don't believe that our spirit is separated. When, when we are raised from the dead, it's our whole selves, body, soul, and spirit. 
Um, resurrection is not some disembodied spirit life in some mid-air heaven. Resurrection is God's people going back into their bodies to live with and for God in the new world that God is making for them. We get our bodies back in the resurrection. This is important. When Jesus is resurrected, his disciples recognize him. They know it's Jesus. Now, when we're resurrected, what do we look like? I don't know. Maybe we get idealized body and everyone is, everyone is eternally 18 and has 0% body, body fat. We can hope, but I have no idea. We'll just have to trust God on that one. But our bodies come back. Verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Two things that are going on here. Some of the language is from Daniel chapter 7 where it talks about how one like the Son of Man will go up in the clouds after he has finished his suffering and God vindicates him. So they're intentionally looking back at Daniel, which people would have known. And the other thing that's going on here, the language from Daniel 7, is also the language of a dignitary approaching. So if, you know, Caesar Augustus were to come visit your town, the important people in town would go out to meet Caesar, and they wouldn't stay out there, they would walk back in with Caesar. Just like maybe if you had somebody that you really loved or somebody who was really important who was coming to your house, you might actually go wait on the street or you might go out to the driveway and then welcome them and bring them back into the house. That's the picture. So the idea is that the dead are raised and the people who are still living are caught up to be with Jesus, to greet Jesus, and then come back down to earth again. Now, some people interpret this as being the rapture. The rapture is when people um, who are Christians are literally just plucked away from the earth. And you can believe that if you want to. I'm, I'm down with that, that's fine. It's, it's not really my deal. But just be aware that the rapture is a super late doctrine. It doesn't come up until the mid-19th century and early 20th century, and it's pretty much only associated with the United States. Most Christians around the world really don't do the rapture thing. But what I do know about the rapture is if there is one, I'm going. But I'm not spending a lot of time thinking about it or looking for its signs, which is actually the purpose of the sermon this morning. Because it's not so much about spending your life trying to figure out when Jesus is coming again. The main thing to be doing is the purpose that Jesus has for you. And that's what Paul is getting at with the Thessalonians. The most important that Paul is making is the hope that we have in Christ for our current situation and for the life to come. And that's what we need to focus on, not when the Lord might return. And so the problem is they focused on the wrong thing, like me running and not helping somebody. They got fixated on how it was all going to work when Jesus returned, and they stopped doing what they should have been doing, which was to share the hope that they had. That's problem number one. Problem number two was that their understanding was that Jesus was going to return at any time. And so in anticipation of this, some of them quit their jobs. Well, Jesus didn't return at the pace they thought he would, but they still had to eat, they still had to live someplace, they still had to have clothes, they still had to take care of families, and they became charity cases. 
And this made people, particularly in the culture, really, really bitter towards Christians. Somebody else had to take care of them. And this caused people to think really poorly about believers. And that Paul hits several times throughout the letter. We've got to be careful about what we do because we don't want people to think ill of Jesus. The second coming is a great truth. It's an amazing hope for all of us. But if it becomes a fixation, then it becomes a tangent and it takes our attention off the most important things. And that's the problem of fixating on the wrong thing. It derails you. It's one thing for the hope that we have in Jesus, the hope of the second coming, the hope of the resurrection, to pull us through to the promise of God. It's another thing when trying to decipher the signs of the, signs of the times interrupts what we're supposed to be about. If you want to read more about the second coming of Jesus, I'd refer you to 1 Thessalonians 5.1 and Matthew 24.36. But both of those very clear texts basically say nobody knows the day or the time. And the smart people, the people that God will approve, are the people who are doing what they should be doing, waiting for the sun to come back. I think that the teaching of the scripture is that we need to live as if Jesus could return today. But that doesn't mean selling our possessions and standing out in a field. That means we need to be about the most important things. We need to not be spending hours trying to decode the scriptures or to decode the news. We need to be sharing the hope within us with people. The study of end times can become a tangent, especially in times like this, where there are wars and rumors of wars and famine. And, you know, we can get out our charts and we can see how this looks like it's being fulfilled. But honestly, folks, ever since this book was written, people have looked and have found those things. And still, Jesus hasn't returned yet. It's not that I don't think he will. I absolutely do. I just think that our time should be better spent sharing the hope that, have, that we have instead of trying to figure out where Jesus is coming. The study of the end times can become a tangent, and we've got to guard against tangents because tangents, by definition, take you away from the main thing. And there really are all sorts of potential tangents out there. We have so many things that can, that can distract us from what the most important things are. Social media, self-care, we talked about that last week. We can get so caught up in making sure that we have what we want that we can completely miss what God has for us. Our, our own personal preferences. Um, I just have been living in Philippians 2, where the example of Jesus is that he divests himself. He gives up all of his prerogatives. He doesn't grasp being like God, but he empties himself in order to serve God's purposes. And so every time I hear people talk about their personal preference, what they want, their rights, I always think about Philippians 2, where Jesus empties himself of his rights so that he can serve other people. We can be distracted. The news cycle can be such a tangent. There's so much misinformation out there, so many rumors. We talked about that last week. And so much clickbait that's just designed to get you interested and send you down a rabbit hole that's completely tangential. There's so much noise and tangential information that we can miss what God has for us. We also need to recognize like Paul was pointing out to the Thessalonians, that we are all influencers. We influence all sorts of people. You influence your kids, 
We influence our friends. We influence our coworkers. We influence the people who serve us in restaurants. We are either a force for good or a force for bad. And honestly, every time somebody posts on Gig Harbor Town Talk, I wish that they would remember that. We are influencing other people. And we can tear them down or we can build them up. And all of it reflects on Jesus. You don't live just for you. you don't, what you do doesn't reflect just on you. If you have ever mentioned to any of your employees that you go to church, and you should, if you've ever invited a coworker or uh, somebody in one of your classes to Christmas Eve or to Easter or to serve with you at CMJ Sunday, Sunday they're noticing every action you make. And it's all reflecting on Jesus. Paul was concerned about the reputation that Christians had. And we need to be concerned about that too. What are we known for? The Thessalonians had to deal with the reputation that they were destabilizing the government and that they were basically leeches on society. What are Christians known for today? What are you known for? I don't want anything I do or say to put a stumbling block between people and Jesus. Let them stumble over the cross if they will, but I don't want that to be something that I said or did that keeps them from the cross. You're not all going to be running down Point Fostick this week and blow off somebody who needs help because you are focused on the wrong thing. But you will come into contact with people this week and your behavior will affect them. It will encourage them or it will discourage them. It will push them closer to Jesus or it will give them an excuse to walk further away from Jesus. That will happen to you this week. And I hope you'll plan to be focused on the most important thing and not on a tangent. So let me ask you three questions. What is the tangent that you are most likely to follow? Number two, do you think people generally find you encouraging or discouraging? And number three, what are the three greatest influences on your life?